what one thing would I wish I'd known 10 years ago? So to be fair, I'm going to be quite cheeky with this one because it's not one thing that I'd wish I'd known um, 10 years ago. To be honest with you, it's actually probably two things. Hey, up and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis. I am the host of the show. And that voice you heard just to start off is Thierry Ngutagora. Thierry wants to break all the rules of the show and answer two things when I only asked for one. But you know what? They're both good, so we'll let him off. And he's great too. He's a data guy. He works for Salt Agency, but he's also a product inventor, a founder. Um, it comes up with all sorts of stuff, some brilliant products, alcohol products, peanut butter products, and one which is interesting. It's bull semen. But the story behind it is incredible, so listen to that. Thierry is also from Bradford, which is where I'm from, city close to my heart, my hometown, and we talk about the future and what that holds for it, because I think we both believe the city's best days are in front of it, not behind it. So have a listen to that. Thank you to the guests who've been the uh, Black History Month miniseries, Cherise, Anu, Kevin, Colette, and Thierry to finish. After this, we're going from weekly release back to the normal release. So there's not going to be as many episodes, but it's been fantastic hearing five different perspectives of what it's like being black in the UK and in marketing. So enough of me waffling. Let's hear what two things Thierry has to talk about. Um, so the first thing really is that there isn't a singular path. I think that when at this point, what was I like 11 or 12 years old? So you're looking at finishing or talking about your GCSEs. Um, you're probably talking about A-levels and where you're probably going to go to university. And I think that we live in a society where at the time it was almost like a conveyor belt. It was like, bang, bang, bang. This is your process. This is where you go. Fall off the end. Get a job. Crack on. See you later. Pay. Do stay in your role for 35 years. Cash in your pension. And, and, and you know, everything's hunky-dory. I do wish that somebody had told me that I do not have to prescribe to that kind of uh, linear process that there is 10 ways to get to the same destination. I think that was super important, which to be fair, I almost kind of stumbled into after that point, which we'll kind of touch on a little bit later. And then the second thing that I was kind of going to do a cop out as well is that like people aren't inherently as mean as we first think they are. So what I mean by that is that I think back in the day, back in, back in the day, um, we used to have more faith in our communities and the people around us uh, in the sense of whether it's it, it kind of materialized from a sense of kids playing out on the street or whatever that might be. Uh, and then we've become to a point where like media kind of uh, drills down on the bad things that are happening in the world. And so then it feels like it's happening all around you. And then that manifests as well. The ripple effects of that is that within your career, you you believe people are scary and you don't approach them for help in where you would like to go and the things that you would like. Like right now in my career, there isn't a single person I wouldn't DM and think and say, listen, I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. Like we should do something one time. And quite literally, it's almost like how we met Andy. Like it was quite, it was social media and saying, hey, mm-hmm. I think what you're doing is cool. I think you're a cool person. I think we'd vibe, et cetera. Um, and then you start on this trajectory of like friendship and career support and everything else. You kind of look after each other. But at that time, I it wasn't a thing. Um, to jump into someone's DMs who you believe is doing something incredible way ahead of you to to learn yeah. what they've done. Uh, the second point particularly really chimes with me. Well, both points really chime with me, but that second point is something that I, I love and I love talking about because we live in a world, certainly in the UK at least, where there's this relentless message that people are out to get you. And yeah. sometimes people who, especially people who look different to you and who are, are not from around here, are yeah. out to get you. And generally speaking, I don't believe they are. Yeah. 43 years old, I reckon in my entire life, I think I've met maybe two or three people who I would call absolute bad bastards, right? Yeah. I've met <laughs> people all over the world who will, you know, stop and will put themselves at risk or will take themselves out of their way to help you. And actually yeah. the human spirit is a beautiful thing. And if you just stop and open yourself up to look at it and go, ah, uh, you know, actually just take those shutters down and go, right, people are actually there trying to help you. The number of people yeah. who will do something for you is just incredible. It's a huge number of people. Yeah. And yeah. I, you yeah. know, I love that, that, you know, you've seen that and you've also seen it in your work life as well, that, just ask sometimes and people are like, yeah, okay, yeah. we can do this. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think most of the mistakes we make are as a byproduct of actually not asking for help. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think 
there we live in a culture as well now where like I can't scroll Instagram for 10 seconds without an entrepreneur telling me you have to fail you must fail in order to succeed and I totally do agree that you do but a lot of those failures can be mitigated just by speaking to another human who has encapsulated that failure the most powerful thing about failing is the ability to tell turn around and tell somebody behind you by the way watch that step like that's really the power of the human race. And that's that's why we've been able to evolve and overcome diseases and famine, et cetera, because we have the ability to turn around and disseminate that information. And so then if we're not really speaking to each other in any way, whether it be business, society, et cetera, that is why we always say, oh, history repeating itself because we didn't speak to each other ultimately. My last take on that then is that you probably need to retrain your Instagram algorithm because all I get if I start scrolling Instagram is people falling off of things. And honestly, yes. it brings joy to my yeah, heart. No Sorry, I said people. It's always men. Always men it's, falling off of things. Because <laughs> once again, they don't speak, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, if only someone could have predicted this would have happened. It's like everyone Honestly. predicted it was going to happen, except you. <laughs> Literally. Nightmare. Thierry Ngutigore, who broke all the rules this morning by having two answers to the question where it only asked for one answer. So you can see the man is a rebel at heart. Thierry, welcome to the strategy sessions. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, a rebel at heart is very much uh, what I'll have on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> You've got that. Mine's going to say talk to your customers. I think I know who wins this. It's definitely yeah. you. <laughs> so I'm going to start at the beginning because I want to talk about your rebellious nature because um, we share an amazing heritage of uh, being BD kids. If you don't know what a BD kid is, it's Bradford in West Bradford. Yorkshire. The place, everyone's like, where's that? And you have to say it's near Leeds, which breaks everybody's heart if you're from Bradford. But you mm. went to school in Bradford. Um, and is that where you've got your rebellious streak from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really interesting because, like, Bradford has birthed many a things. So um, I ran into Chris Kamara the other day. I, I didn't even know he was a proud Bradfordian as well. Um, like, do you know what I mean? Like, even Zayn Malik, like, and then we've got me and you. Listen, Bradford is churning the excellence out, realistically. Absolutely, it's about time right? yeah. Gareth Gates, don't forget Gareth Gates. I'm telling you right now, we're churning excellence out. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I, I love growing up in Bradford. Um, there's an extreme sense of community when it comes to Bradford. There's, a sweet, there's an extreme sense of, like, outside of London, it's the first city I've seen that has extreme pride on a postcode. So, like, even when somebody's like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, BD6. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that area. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it, it was it was a beautiful place to grow up. And it's it's one of those spectacular cities where you are in the city centre one second, uh, but your house is situated on, like, lands of, like, greenery, which is incredible and a, mm-hmm. and a blessing when you're growing up as a kid um, to be able to, to, to roam around those kind of areas. And so, yeah, you know, rebellious is in its nature because discovery then occurs when you have lots of things to kind of uh, run around in. So, yeah, Bradford very much, um, if not ignited, kept that fire alive for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you don't, if you only vaguely know Bradford listening to this podcast, you've probably only heard bad things about the city, right? It, yeah. it is, look, let's be honest, it's a city that has struggled to find its way in modern society. So very quick history lesson. It was a, a massive city during the Industrial Revolution. Wool was its yeah. main industry. Lots of mills, some, some of the most beautiful buildings. I always say from a distance, Bradford's one of the most beautiful cities yeah. in the UK, right? You stand on a hillside, you see these amazing mills, these beautiful streets. Looks fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, there is no wool industry in the UK anymore. All the mills have shut down, all the industry disappeared, and Bradford struggled to find its feet since then. But And, and that's led to some, some challenges, areas of deprivation. Um, there was a large migration came in at the area and, and all sorts of stuff, which has led to different communities and different pockets of things happening. Yeah. But So that leads to people telling you all the bad things about Bradford. But when you get into Bradford, it's just an amazing city. There is just this... Energy about the place, which I don't find in many other places, and that sometimes energy is mischanneled. But there is an yeah. amazing energy about the place that leads to this sort of fusion and this creation and different things banging into each other, which just causes creativity to happen. And yeah. I love going. I, don't, I, haven't, look, I haven't lived in Bradford since the nineties, sadly, but all my family's still there, and I love going back to the place. Yeah. I love it, and there's just something. I don't know, maybe it's in the water, right? I don't know, but it's just a great place to be, isn't it? And, and you know, it's great. Like, do you tell me yeah. why you think it's great? <laughs> yeah. No, I absolutely, I, I mean, I'm, I love it. I mean, I've even bought a house here. Like, it's ultimately where, um, um, 
I kind of see foundations being built, and that's why you see such intergenerational families living here for like mm-hmm. decades upon decades upon decades. You know, it's it, yeah, it's it's an incredible staple, and I think that I think the worst thing to happen to Bradford was probably Leeds. Like Leeds has become such a a melting pot, a mixing pot of people. It's almost like a Leeds is almost like a small London. Like I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with Leeds just as much as I'm kind of obsessed with Bradford, but I do think that. Um, because it's so close, it's had that ripple effect of like, you know, when like Brighton used to be somewhere we'd like people go to retire and now it's full of people like me, like little hipsters who go down there. It's like the ripple effect of London has meant that people have a far reaching effect. Mm-hmm. It's almost happened to Bradford in a sense of like, because Leeds was so close, people just went to Leeds. Like, uh, and so then uh, almost compounded some of the struggles that it's had. But over the last decade or so, and um, uh, and City of Culture bids and things like that, there's a lot of people really pushing uh, for it to not get back on its legs, per se. It's not that down. It starts sprinting again. It was, you know, it was a it was a world-class winner, and that's exactly where uh, we'd all love for it to get again. Absolutely. And, and there's lessons, though, that you take from... Uh, we were talking just before we started about sometimes the problems of having too much, uh, we're talking client problems, too much money perhaps, in that I think sometimes money can stifle innovation. And that might sound like a counterintuitive problem, but I once interviewed Professor Robert Winston, um, the owner of one of the most famous mustaches on British TV. And (laughs) I talked to him about maybe having more money for research. And he, he said the same thing. He was like, too much money into research stops you thinking creatively about problems. And I, so I kind of take that approach and roll that back to there's a chance for Bradford, I think, because it doesn't necessarily have all the bells and whistles that everything else has. Yeah. So then find something different by crashing things together and going, hold on, this is something that could have only ever come from Bradford yeah. and have that real kind of unique home spin on it. And I think that there's something brewing there. I get the feel that like, there's a positivity coming back to the place that I haven't felt in probably 10, 15 years. Yeah, I totally agree. Could not agree more. And uh, you know what, Andy, it might be that uh, we help it get there. So we <laughs> we might be the, the, the things that need to crash together. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Watch this space. So, yeah. um, but think, so for this to happen, ideas have to come from out between your ears and into yes. action. And probably out of all the people I've ever met, no one does that and puts ideas into action better than you. Um, we we are sometimes polar opposites in this. Like I am criminally an overthinker sometimes when it comes to it's like I have this good idea. I'm going to sit on it for three and a half years and see if it comes to fruition. And nothing ever happens unless you do something. But you're yeah. a serial product launcher. Would that be a good way of describing you? <laughs> yeah, I'm um, uh, I'm a serial action taker. Um, and I think it's 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 one of those things where it's like really only kind of took to fruition over the last probably uh, four or five years to say, um, because like, as I say, like it, it's difficult to articulate because there was once upon a time as well, where I was afraid of talking to people or I didn't want to look wrong. I didn't. I, and when I looked at adults, when I looked at adults in my head a decade ago, 30 year old me, I was like, listen, adults have got their shit together, man. Like, I was thinking, how on earth am I going to get to like 30 years old? And you're like, you got a mortgage, you got a house, you got kids running around, you got this, you're balancing this, then you go on holiday, then you've got your career, and like, you're sort of singing or dancing. And it looked like, obviously, for the, the, the life that my parents portrayed was obviously very well together, and it's, you know, a really tight knit family. And I was like, I have a lot of love and respect for my parents. And I, so then I was like, how on earth? Are they running this shit? This looks nuts. Um, but then when you get closer to that age, you you realise that actually it is the greatest spinning play act as anyone has ever seen, and everybody's just trying their best. And it's not mm-hmm. perfect every day. The trend line over decades, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you can get past... If you can... You know, the, the confidence comes through knowing that you can get through a bad day uh, and that those days will come. Um, and so then, actually, when I realised that it's not perfect... I was like, well, what's stopping me from just doing this kind of thing? Like, if it fails, all right, cool. Like, it is what it is. Um, I, like, what re- what's the worst thing that could actually happen apart from me over-criticizing? Because there's nobody that's going to critique you more than yourself. So I was like, if I like myself. <laughs> so therefore, let's just give it a crack. So, yeah. Let's just... And that, I, I, a friend of mine, Andy Borthwick, 
Hello, Andy. He's probably not listening. Um, I talked to him for about, oh, I don't know, maybe 18 months, maybe two years before I launched Eximo, um, including a number of other people as well. And at one point over a beer, Andy, I think, had just had enough. And he was like, just fucking do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah but and he was like, what is the worst that could happen? And you build up these worst things that could happen. But the reality is, actually, I'll go back to what you said right at the beginning. If we just ask somebody, you work out that the worst that can happen is not all that bad. And the things you'll learn along the way, you know, like yeah. this, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I remember someone going, you know, it's a bit cheesy, but sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And when you reframe it as that, you're like, actually, you can't ever really lose when you launch something, can you? If you yeah. do something different, you're always learning something. Um, yeah. So products yeah. you've launched, um, peanut butter. Yes. Um, that's probably the one that, that appeal, not appeals to me most, but confuses me the most. In that yeah. it feels like a really difficult segment to crack. It feels like a difficult product to make, and it feels like, a, you know, a, a section that's like, you've, tell, tell you what, let's roll back a step. Tell us about some of the products you've launched, and then we'll talk about peanut butter. Yeah, so, oh God, um, the very first one I tried to launch, and um, it didn't fall on its Bum, I I tripped it over. Um, <laughs> was uh, I started a videography company? I used to um, dance like competitively at university, so like hip hop and break dance, and we used to go to different universities and even go abroad and compete and stuff like that. Um, and I realized a niche, so I did a videography uh, da- specifically dance videography company back when like YouTube was was young. Um, we I've done two three beers with Northern Monk, which is quite cool. Um, a peanut butter. Um, I am looking to launch a, a handbag rental business, which is quite cool. Um, I sell bull semen. <laughs> a little bit about that later. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Tasty. Yeah, and then yeah, peanut butter, and then I've got one more product coming out this year, which I will keep on the wraps. But is very up our street, Andy, and it's something that uh, post thirty, uh, more of us will need uh, in our social lives. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, hopefully it's cocoa on a, a quiet night in, because that's all I feel yes. like I need now. Um, so, yeah, so um, bull semen we will come back to. But so peanut butter. Beers, yeah. I, I can kind of get my head around. Uh, I know, and maybe it's because I know a little bit about the beer market, having worked in it, and alcohol, I can see. But that sort of FMCG product that may need a supermarket shelf space to actually take yeah. off to any particular level just feels like a really brutal space to enter so what was the thought process behind mother nutter that the, that the yeah correct yeah. yes mother nutter peanut butter um so with a lot of these types of ideas i always think that if you don't start um and yes inevitably something might not work etc um there is no compounding effect i believe like ideation and something of success is the compounding effect of try and try again. And so mm-hmm. even with Mother Nutter, like that was a beautiful thing because I'd done the beers and I was trying to launch tequila at the time as well. And so then actually um, people around me and uh, saw that trial mentality within me. And so said, hey, I have a friend. Um, they're currently running a really successful uh, jam and chutney business, but I think they would they see it, uh, you know, a, a corner in the market within um, within the peanut butter industry. Would it be something that you could kind of uh, worlds collide and you create something beautiful there? What the hell do I know about peanut butter? Like I, the, the, in terms of peanut butter, I go to the gym and I eat peanut butter because it's a healthy uh, way of eating. You know, good fats and high protein. Spoon in the jar. It's everything. Spoon in the jar. I like. I use it to it's bake. Underrated. People so who don't is, put a spoon in the jar, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it is the like, it is the one. I put my hand in the jar if there's none left as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm an absolute fiend for it. Yeah, literally. Um, and so then that was. It sounds really bizarre, but it's really not. And it can be. It's just taking uh, the career that I kind of have within marketing and me being a consumer and merging those worlds together. So people thought peanut butter was weird, but it's not really, because it's not even that saturated. It's actually quite a boring market. So what I mean by that is, when you go and buy peanut butter, the typical experience is you'll stand in front of uh, a shelf, and there is no brand loyalty. You'll go and you say, I love crunchy. Okay, that's like pound fifty. Cool. And it's almost price-driven by that point, and it's a convenience product. And it's mm-hmm. something that 
you kind of inherit from your parents as a brand in terms of like, oh, my parents always had this in the jar or a partner or a housemate or whoever. There's never really somebody who almost like instinctively makes makes a decision unless you are um, either like a, a vegan following a specific diet and so therefore have had to look for other sources of high, uh, like protein and good fats and things like that. And so therefore you are kind of really uh, looking at your diet in general. But the average consumer, really, it's it's a thing that they, they, they stumble past when they're passing bread and go, oh, yeah, I need that. Like, oh, I should probably get that. That signifies health. And so there's a real opportunity in the market there to therefore create a brand that actually had a voice and an opinion and was cool and do almost like um, uh, what liquid death has done to water, where, you know, rock stars don't want to be seen on stage with Evian bottle. That's not very rock and roll. But if you've got a can that signifies, you know, uh, who they are as an individual and you, no one can see that they're drinking water. You can have water and still look very rock and roll. So then, similarly with peanut butter as well, like, can we create a brand that allows people to signify something to them and to their partners and to their friends as soon as they get it out? But like, oh my god, have you seen Mother? No, oh, this is this is a certain brand that I have, etc. And it creates that kind of uh, community aspect. And and if it gets picked up by a supermarket, fantastic. If it doesn't, so be it. it doesn't really matter. With well, the large proportion of these products that I launch. The, the the ethos I stick to is that are me and my friends going to use it? Do we do me and my friends need this product? If they don't, then I will not do it. Simple as that. There's many products I've just not started or opportunities I've not kind of jumped on board. Uh, but yeah, if it's to the benefit of my friends and I think I would buy it, then we'll go for it. So there's something really interesting there. And I know people who have spent any time in a workshop with me might be screaming at the phone right now going, you've got to ask the question, Andy, ask the question. <laughs> One of the things I say all the time to clients is you are not your customer. And yeah. you've got to take yourself. I, 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 the, the thing I hear the most in workshops is I think, and I, usually a hand goes up and I'm like, let, let me just stop you there. Because in the politest way possible, nobody cares what you think because you yeah. are not the customer and yeah. we need to. So it's interesting to hear that your product, part of your product launch ideation, I suppose, is that I might be the customer and there, there may be more people like me. So in my, in my marketing head, I'm going, does that though lead you down a path where you can be blinded to problems or issues with it because you're you become so invested in it? And that's what I tried to say to people. I was like, "You're not the customers. Like, just take your step back and take a yeah. dispassionate look at it, as opposed to being yeah. involved in it so much." Is that a problem for you? Yeah. So I, I totally agree with that narrative as well, um, and it's something that I've had to be really careful with because it's the reason why a few of my earlier ideas kind of flopped as well because. Um, I was a narcissist around the product. Um, as I say, like I put myself into into the middle of that when it was unnecessary. So in terms of like the with the peanut butter and, and this kind of other brands that I've, I'm kind of building at the moment, I see myself as a consumer in terms of the physical product as opposed to the the marketing aspect and the growth of said brand. So mm -hmm. would I do I think this level of this peanut butter is good enough quality for me to be happy to consume? Yes, amazing. And then I'll build a team around the branding, the marketing, etc., who have a complete diverse way of thinking and a, a way of executing certain things. Because in previous attempts when I've tried to be like, okay, I know how the market's going to look like. I know that I'm going to need this. I know that I'm going to need that. I haven't got a clue. And it fails like almost immediately um, mm -hmm. just because there is no diversity in thought that I've, that I've accounted for there. And what I've also learned is that you can have, like, my, like if we look at my protein, for example, both me and my mum shop at my protein, right? So if they looked at those demographics, they would kind of be like, oh, right, there is a 30 to, you know, 55, 60-year-old um, demographic going on here. Cool. They probably all want health-based products, right? Well, I'll give Thierry as well as Thierry's mum 25% off whey protein, right? Whereas, actually, the intent is vastly different because I'm going there from a perspective of um like uh, performance whereas my mum is going there for like collagen longevity right mm -hmm. so the intent is vastly different and so that's where i'm like actually i bring in other people to help me disseminate what that intent is because in my head i'm like well people come to eat peanut butter because they love peanut butter but it's actually no it's a great food for example to uh, introduce children to when they're going on to solid foods it's a great thing from a uh, health and performance perspective as well as longevity as well as baking as well as so the I cannot cover all of those intents, and so then yeah, as long as the the quality is is good 
um, I introduce a team to kind of help me disseminate that intent. So to throw a hand grenade at you, yeah, you uh, come up with products that you want to be the consumer of. Um, beers with Northern Monk, tequilas, uh-huh. peanut butter. Okay. Oh God! How the <laughs> hell did you get to bull semen then? <laughs> and what do you do in the evenings and weekends? <laughs> I mean, is this part of some sort of weightlifting thing? Are you kind yes, of taking shots of bull semen and just like taurine? Ah, and well, I'm saying, good? anyone that's ever drank a red, anyone that's ever drank a Red Bull, <laughs> you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no. Although the the protein intake is very high, I I assume um, it's, it's not the texture my point. that's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not for me. I'm all right. Um, but that is like with like b- when you start things serially you spot patterns quite easily so i think that product launches and starting business or building things like that is is actually more so pattern recognition so i have the ability to spot okay this thing will happen okay knock on effect five steps i can predict this thing will, will go on and so then with being able to monetize an idea which is ultimately really what i kind of do for a living uh, you spot certain patterns that that thing can occur quite quickly and, uh, and and spot markets and things like that quite fast. So, like, I enjoy attempting to commercialize things. Like, I love that. The idea of trying to uh, kind of man- almost like manifest money almost. That's, sort of, like, that's ultimately what kind of a side hustle is. So, long story short, my uh, granddad... Uh, we went to go visit him, and traditionally, you um, uh, when you go see kind of an elder, he gifted us with a cow, uh, both my, me and my sister. Um, and when we came then back home to the UK, um, we obviously then had to take the upkeep of that cow. It, were, it wasn't going to fit in our carry-on on Ryanair, so um, we had to take uh, care of the upkeep as well as like the vet bills. And that was a it was a financial toll because at that time we we're like what fifteen sixteen my sister was like twelve at that point as well like it's it's a it's it's a bit intense so then um I kind of started to have a little read around like well what do farmers do with cows like what happens around here like bulls and things like that um and then I just it led down a bit of a dark hole, but there was a lot of ways of like monetizing um uh, cattle and things like that uh, but the quickest what I was looking for was. I was desperate for cash. I was like, how do you, what is the quickest like turnaround for this kind of thing? Because a lot of the stuff is like, you know, let them graze or abbot or quite final, like a finite mm-hmm. terms of I'm not going to get that cow back. Um, and so I was like, how do I um, uh, kind of have longevity against this? Now I'd had a bull and my sister was then given a cow. So then I did my homework around it and saw the value of a cow. And I said, right, okay, I will give you 250 cash right now. If you give me your cow. And my sister was like, absolutely, take it. I ain't got time for that. <laughs> um, and so then the transaction occurred. I then called up my granddad and said, this is what I want to do. Uh, we're going to breed the, uh, the the bull and the cow. And then also from a longevity perspective, um, you can, any offspring of that, of, 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 uh, that process that produces milk or anything else like that, keep that for your farm. That's almost like a me to you, thank you so much type thing. Any bulls that then come from that, um, uh, that procedure, um, could we uh, then basically um, start selling their their their, their semen because for they're quite healthy, it's a great farm, mm-hmm. and so therefore uh, longevity uh, of that uh, of of that process, the semen is the easiest way to give them a great life as well as um, kind of reap the rewards from that. And so yeah, built up to about twelve or so cows, twelve to fourteen cows, um, and it did it did quite well. Yeah, excellent. So I'm. Um... Uh, based in Northern Ireland and did once have a client that was involved in the insemination of uh, cattle. Apparently, massive business within the farming yeah. world. And I think yeah. this is about, you mentioned diversity of thought. As, as a city boy, I had no idea about this, right? Yeah. I, I go and ask questions at clients. That's 90% of my job is asking questions and listening. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, this is big business, right? Isn't it? Yeah. You, you know, you do all, right? Oh, okay. And it was, it was incredible, this world that exists outside of the city that, that is there. So, and is the, is the bull semen business still going? Um, so I have sold a proportion of the, um, of those cows, but yeah, it's something that, uh, my family still, uh, kind of run and benefit from, uh, over in Rwanda as well, which is quite, it's quite nice. 
Brilliant, brilliant. So, oh, okay. So, but it's not a product you use personally, which is good to know. Uh, no. um, <laughs> excellent. Could have been an awkward end to the podcast that one, but that. <laughs> You also mentioned something at the beginning of the um, of the bull story that about pattern pattern recognition, which yeah. kind of segues us nicely into your day job, for want of a better description. So you, you are a, a your you data is your day job, right? Yeah. And so tell us firstly, what is it you do with data? So you work for an agency, Salt Agency. You've worked yes. at a couple of agencies. What do you look? At, what do you do with data? You don't just sit there surrounded by spreadsheets, going, "Ah, oh, I have all the data." You know, what, what do you do? Yeah. What are you looking for? Yeah. So, like, even it's it, it's it's pretty much spot on there. Like, I think that my title is interesting because it's the best current fit for the understanding of what we do at the, at this moment in time. Um, I think it will evolve and change as we start to have a larger vocabulary around data. I think AI will do a large proportion, will help us to do that. You know, in, in the emergence of something that powerful allows tangents to occur. But ultimately, although it's data, my job is twofold, is understanding people and then telling those stories. That's flat out what it actually is regardless of what it is that i'm reading i think at the moment it's just because as i say our vocabulary isn't large enough for us to break down specific types of data and truly understand um that on a commercial level but yeah so my job is ultimately at the moment in time we live in a world where we know more about ourselves and humanity than we ever have done before we collect more data than has ever existed and so therefore you'd think the natural correlation would be that if i collect a lot about you i understand a lot about you but that is just far from it it's almost like the more we collect the more confused we're getting about each other mm -hmm. and so then my job is to ultimately sit between those teams so the the people collecting and the people trying to understand um and I sit between those teams and I help bridge that level of communication. So it's not a case of saying, yes, I have 100% of data and I need to understand 100% of it. 5% of it might only be pivotal to your business or your brand or what it is that you're trying to do. So hyper-focus on that 5% because it matters right now. But obviously, in the long term, that that it's it's great to keep an eye on that, on the rest of that 9 to 5%. But yeah, that is my job to kind of uh, the strategic application of, of data into creativity in some way. I, I love the bit you said about the more data we collect, the less we seem to know about people. And that's um, yeah. been a bane of my existence for, for a decade, I think, now. And I've, I've always... I've always skewed towards qual research rather than quants. I've always found yeah. it more useful. And I think that's partly because I hated SPSS at uni. So that yeah. going into data just felt like something I didn't ever want to do. But more than that, I, I felt the... I, I always refer to quant as black and white and qual as color. Not mm -hmm. that one's, any, no one's better, they just do different things. And yeah. I think I always found the stories and the texture and the, the, the nuance to what people said much more interesting. And, and it, it was something I could play around with and see the patterns in. Whereas looking mm -hmm. at numbers and spreadsheets, I always felt like I was kind of just looking at a magic eye puzzle and could never quite step far yeah. enough away from it to, to see the thing. Yeah. Um, but I think you know. But I do have a realization that you need both together. So the fact that you're taking data and trying to tell stories with it and bridging that gap, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Uh, have you got any examples you can share with us of where that's maybe come to fruition? Obviously, you don't need to mention client names or anything like that. But where there's been a knotty problem that the data's helped sort of shape the solution to. Yeah, I mean, even the stuff that I've talked about when it comes like our earlier one, so without having to step into like any accidentally name any brands knowing me, but like <laughs> <laughs> even though uh, the example that we we're using for my protein earlier when we were talking about intent, right? Like we got to a point where like uh, there's only so much whey protein you can keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And it's like, well, how do we talk to more people about the same product? And so then that is ultimately my job to come in and go, okay, brilliant. So at the moment, who you have typically been selling whey protein to is this audience um the people who have the ability to consume your product are this much and then within that is exactly what you're talking about i'm talking i'm trying to understand right of those groups what is similar about them and different and makes them different to other groups as well and then understanding those groups uh and what their intents are um so what is it that they want what are their psychographics do is there a different in like are they more price elastic for example so then should we be sending thierry's mum 
at 25% and Thierry 15% because we know Thierry will convert at that point. Is Thierry's motivation actually uh, something completely different? So does does he want to know uh, when he is looking at the product, does he drop down on the product details? And so therefore he wants to understand the nutritional information versus um, Thierry's mum, who maybe comes from Facebook, bounces onto our website, is like, I'm already pretty much sold. I've absorbed the content on that perspective. So she just mm-hmm. buys it because she, her and her friends talk about it. Like what, what, on that customer journey, what makes them similar, but also what makes them distinct and different to other groups? Um, and how can we then understand that story and carve an experience uh, that kind of helps them? So it might be product bundles from that perspective. It might be the way you surface your content. It might even be the influences that you use and the surface to those those individuals. Uh, channel execution as well. Like um, if I want to get Thierry, I would get him on Instagram and TikTok. Whereas if I want to um, get Thierry's mum, you would be getting her on Facebook and other kind of uh, mediums that way. And so then it completely shapes the way that I, I, this is the thing, like why communicating data is like so powerful if listened to, because it has the ability to tell you uh, the possibilities and avenues you could go down when you're in a moment of like, um, not even struggle when you have the tried and tested method has come to almost an end in a way of like, okay, we've done it too much, oversaturated, or it's getting expensive. Um, mm-hmm. And it has the ability to be like, okay, well, there are these other avenues. Um, and also, like, super important, like you said as well, like sometimes creativity is born from the fact that you don't have a full budget because, yeah, you could just be like, well, if I want to get more, I don't need to think about segmentation because I'll just put more money in. And, and it's like, well, Actually, no. Um, if you put less money in and you're a little bit more strategically like creative in the way that you talk to these people, um, there's probably more longevity in that conversation than there is at just dashing more we money. Can, we can call it the Timu approach to marketing of just buy market share by by pouring <laughs> billions into blitzing everybody yeah. with ads. Uh, yeah. I'm worried that I've actually said the word t- the word Timu in a podcast now, and I'll be targeted even more. But that's, yeah. um, <laughs> I, to, to, to roll back a step, the, the great advertising guy, Dave Trott, used the phrase, said, every number tells a story. And mm-hmm. that's how you have to look at data, is that every number tells a story and it's our job yeah. to try and tell it. And I think what you're talking about there is this new sort of data role. My, my big frustration with data roles for the last, probably last decade, maybe even more, is that my one criticism is they are always, always, always backwards looking. So if you're looking at data, you're only ever standing where you are now and looking backwards. And people then go, oh, yeah, but we've got all this data from Facebook, all this data from Google. And I said, yeah, that tells us what has happened. It doesn't tell us what is going to happen. Or we can predict. Yeah. But the skills weren't there. The skills were there for analyzing what was there in the past. But I think what you're talking about now is standing at that bridge and saying, so now we have that. Now we can look at what's going to happen in the future. And there'll be data people listening going, I know we've always been doing that. I think they always have, but I'm not sure they've been doing it with the correct depth and nuance and understanding. And actually all they've been doing is saying, this is the pattern that we had in the past. So this is what we'll have in the future. I think what you're saying is this is the pattern that we've had in the past. Now we can shape the future based on that, which is a slightly different thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've worked with like some change behavior, uh, brands as well, where it's like, yeah, knowing how people perceive and act around smoking, how do we therefore change a behavior? So like, I have no historic data on how that change behavior will look like. I just know how they previously behaved. And now I need to kind of cultivate a way of um, um, kind of changing their mind and uh, the cultural and psychological principles around that as well. I think that those data skills have always existed. Let's be realistic. Like data people have always kind of been like at the forefront of that type of innovation in terms of collection, etc. I I think where we fall down is the dissemination of information to, uh, correctly to individuals to help them do that. I think that I've come across and I've I've come across a lot of people who uh, kind of sit high and mighty when it comes to data, and a large proportion of their role is actually saying, "I told you so." And it's like, that's fantastic, mate. You have the Sorry, as, soon, as soon as you're saying that, I've got three names just going bang, 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 straight yeah. in the mind. I was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I know that guy. Yeah. And I know that guy yeah. as well. Yeah, so. yeah. And they hold the keys to the kingdom. And their job is to say, I told you so. Um, and 
actually where the, the, the superpower kind of comes uh, into its own is if you have the ability to find somebody who who has the ability to collect said behavior aspects or or information that you need and then has a unique ability of um, giving that to people who are maybe not so data literate and they just mm-hmm. want to understand the story that has been told and how it matches with their own story or narrative or how it doesn't match. Um, and 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 help them understand that. So instead of saying, "Okay, brilliant," oh, I'm gonna, cr- I'm just gonna create a dashboard that everybody can go on and self serve and look at the data themselves. And it's like that's fantastic, but we're assuming a level of data literacy across an organization of completely vastly different people from all walks of life and completely different um, uh, kind of uh, skill sets because ultimately not everybody comes into it with a with a level of data literacy that you're trying to apply to them and so you're like well obviously it's that but no it's not obvious at all and the fact that you've even said it's obvious just goes to show you know how weak your level of communication is against your own work um and you're actually stifling your own growth at that point because unfortunately in business you know you're only as powerful as what you're able to to tell and and and, and leverage and 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 help pe- other people understand because regardless of holding the keys to the kingdom, I truly believe that all business is about relationships. So if I can help you help yourself, I therefore help me. And so there is a data and a people problem occurring there um, that kind of goes hand in hand. And I think when, when you spend a lot of time, I, I feel lucky that I spend a lot of time dipping between companies and organizations and you see I never go into a company and see a lack of smart people. I don't go into a company and see people who don't know how to do the job or see people who don't want to do the job. Yeah, God, look, there's always someone who's just you know taking the money and hoping they don't get found out. But going back yeah. to what we said right at the beginning about the human spirit, 99% of people are in work wanting to do something different. They've got the smarts for it. They've got the desire to do it. But there's often these processes around them that stop it from happening. Yeah. There's often these work-based whether it's tribes, whether it's um, silos or whatever, that stop people getting the information they need in a way they need it to be able to do the thing they want to do. And I think if we could just harness how people work better, you know, it's not more data we need, it's more of people being able to work together that we need. That seems to be the problem that we need to solve. Yeah, no, I, I do totally agree. I think that you are right in the sense of there is like a people and a process problem per se. So, uh, a process in the way of the way we work um, kind of getting in the way of the way we kind of communicate the work that we do to other people and why it's important. And so therefore, or even why it's not important, therefore we should focus on your thing, for example. And then, yes, there is a people problem from a perspective of like, even the way that we measure people, uh, people's performance is very much like, even if if you look at like how like an all hands meeting goes or end of month, it's like, oh, and now it's the data team. What have you done? And now it's this team. What have you done? So then even the way we talk about it like that is very much, it forces me to be insular and create those kind of data silos within uh, within organizations. And then next thing you know, you've all got different audiences you're actually talking about. The, the, uh, the process and the journey for the customer is completely fragmented and yeah, you don't even know who you're actually physically focusing on. I think that a really easy like step one I've seen in a lot, quite a lot of organizations is sounds like the simple, I think we do actually need to go back to the kind of simplest things. Like that step one is the best performing teams I've seen in terms of the way they disseminate data across a company has been teams that quite literally sit next to each other. It sounds really silly, <laughs> but if I sit next to my finance team, I immediately understand why I should not be costing my proposals in that way because it is therefore not profitable and or you're going to be overworking or over-servicing, et cetera, immediately. If I sit next to the uh, our, our social team, they kind of are like, oh, we've got to put this uh, content uh, schedule or calendar together. We are kind of drying up with ideas. We're not sure where to go. I go, oh, amazing. Well, actually, if we take our SEO data in terms of the way people search and look at that from a seasonal perspective, 12 months, then then people actually buy cyclically. So therefore, in terms of ideas, we should be focusing on this form of ideas in order for us to land for Q1. And therefore, as a buying team, we should be focusing on this because these are the products that have been outperformed. Like, we start having these conversations that would have never really occurred if all I do is create a dashboard and go, at all, please read this stat and do it as you would. Like, and also We've then- got Power BI, the world's much better. Yeah. Like, yay. Right? And then we're quite narcissistic when it comes to numbers as well. Like if I find a number that uh, aligns with my bias, I'll use it. So therefore, if you're just sending out dashboards to people, they're like, oh, 20% of this, 
Amazing. Boom. Bang. Put on my deck. Amazing. So therefore, 20% of people do this. And it's like, actually, what is the nuance within that 20%? Why? How have we got to that 20%? Is that 20% as much of a failure as it is a success? Like, what has led us down this kind of garden path instead of just taking a number and kind of using it for our own kind of narcissistic tendencies? Yeah. And look, the number of times people are under pressure and building a deck or writing a report and just need that one number to support the thing that they've said and now they're on the hook for it. So they have to make, you know, we've all written those reports, right? We have all written those reports, yeah, me included. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Um, But to move away from people then and back to the tech for maybe one last question, you mentioned AI very early on in the conversation about how it might change data. Is that in terms of collection processing understanding of what what sort of impact is it going to have do you think yeah so i think it's going to have this leaning effect of um the storytelling aspect so i think that where uh it's going to be the most powerful is i do not believe ai like for a very short amount of jobs yes like if you ever watch charlie in the chocolate factory i think his granddad like lost his job to the mechanical arm that that puts a you know toothpaste screws on like yes a, lo- a large proportion of quite a manual tasks like that, it will ultimately take the job. But what it does for everything that something like that takes, so for every robotic arm that put a chair into a Toyota vehicle, there was an engineer, there was a software developer, there was a quality assurance officer. Like it creates a lot of other jobs in order for, for that thing to happen. But what it did was then create mass production of vehicles so we could do that. So if we think about it from a, a vehicle perspective, it's a great way of putting it, right? So all the parts that go into the vehicle are going to become faster for us to do. So data processing, collecting, mining, cleaning, etc., standardization, um, um, you know, uh, certain types of like analysis were like, like extreme regression at this point, right? Uh, so that all of that can be done at now quite a speed, amazing. But what it's going to take, just like the car factory line is, it's going to take a lot of quality assurance individuals to make sure that that the the the, the level of quality of data and the things that we are um, creating are up to a certain standard. And then there is right at the start as well, like. Uh, the people who who conceptualize that piece of research in terms of understanding, okay, this is the thing that we need to un- to create in order to understand humanity better. And then there's the people at the end who kind of uh, tell that story. So yes, we could produce 50 billion cars, but how do we tell people that they need this car, that it is, you know, it is incredible vital necessity to their, to their lives and actually tell families that it's uh, NCAP safety five or whatever that might be like, how do we tell those stories? So I think it's going to create a lot of pe- a lot more jobs around uh, the dissemination of what it is that we've physically created as opposed to wasting the time creating the thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so then this is where I think it needs to become m- like what we can all do in terms of AI is not try to be like, oh my God, I'm going to have to start figuring out how do I, how do I build my own LLM? No, no. realistically. It's- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do I how do I tell the story a little bit better uh, regards the output of that the LLM has, or how do I leverage it to be able to speed up a lot of the manual processes that I possibly don't like about my job, but the end result um, allows me to tell a more compelling narrative um, and to under- help us understand each other a little bit more. Um, I think that's where uh, the greatest growth is is going to kind of occur. Mm-hmm. No, I I love that, and it, it's a bit like. When something new happens, we always think of how we can use it in exactly the same way as we do now. And I, I use this Disney example. If you ever watch early Disney films, and by early, I mean like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves early. Yeah. Um, it, it's effectively a theatre production done by painting and drawing cartoons. Even the way like it, it switches between scenes, the curtain comes in and then it yeah. switches to the next scene. Why is that? Well, you know, talkies, you know, silent movies were a thing, yeah. which were effectively stage shows there with no talking. But Snow White was shot in the 30s, was it? I think late 30s. You know, talkies, movies with talking, were only started five, four years earlier. And they, then they were doing animation. So the only frame of reference they had was theatre shows. This was a movie theatre. It was just the theatre with a different output. Yeah. You look at Toy Story. That is not theatre that has been animated but when you first look you know it's part of the same line right it's the end of the same line that started there and we are in the minute we are at the minute of um doing snow white and the seven dwarves with ai we're just doing what we know but not you know oh but something new it's like 
but what comes what what's the toy story version of this how do we do that what, how yeah. do we get there so it's a really interesting time to be in that world i imagine and there's, yeah. there's plenty of opportunity with it yeah there definitely is and i was reading a really good book actually i've got it here with me actually it's called scary smart um and this mm-hmm. was um by a incredible author um he was a former chief uh, business officer for google uh, mo gowder um he's probably more famously known for like his happiness equation so he talks about like how do we achieve yeah, um, yeah that's like, why i heard that i was like i know that name uh, yeah 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 super super smart dude um and he in scary smart kind of talks about the future of int- uh, artificial intelligence so i read this actually a couple of years ago um but the way he kind of um articulates how AI or how our fear of AI is going to kind of drive certain behaviors. He's kind of in the, in the camp of, we can't stop it. It's ultimately coming. That's it. It's as simple as that. Now, what AI ultimately does is it will start to understand if we give it a task, it will do the most efficient work in order to, to, to be able to execute uh, that, that kind of work for us. And it, at what point do we believe, like, what do we conceive as consciousness? Because at some point it will have the ability to almost like think and feel in a sense of certain things, right? Depending on the information uh, we kind of give it and, it and it derives from us. And so then it's actually becomes a human problem rather than a tech problem once again, where it's like, if this thing is completing or doing things based on how we think uh, how it thinks we will behave or think and feel about it, then the way we behave is of vital importance. So the way we uh, behave on social media or the way we interact with AI, the way we uh, kind of move around and maneuver around our kind of like financial climate is very, it will have a trickle down effect onto how AI will therefore be able to um, kind of maximize our life for us. Because it could come to a point where there's like two dystopias, right? So there is like one where it's like, like uh, the matrix we are being farmed for electricity because you know they've ai has realized these people are a danger to themselves and the entire planet please put them in an egg and just harvest them for electricity and we'll live forever as machines fantastic then there is the other kind of like uh, utopia of like actually uh, humanity at its core is absolutely fundamentally um positive for the existence of the earth and themselves. And it, they are incredible creatures. They're just sometimes misled. And the things that are, uh, the pressures that help mislead them are like healthcare, uh, financial uh, stability, etc. Okay, brilliant. Well, as machines, if we can create a world where uh, there is no disease and nobody really needs money because there is ample of everything and people can have access to things, then actually humanity is uh, super positive and an incredible thing to have around. And so then it's, yeah, it's really, really interesting for us to be able to think that far ahead because at the moment, what we're talking about is very tactical things. Like, it's very like, Mm -hmm. how do I use AI to increase my ROI, right? (laughs) Whereas like super tactical today type stuff. Whereas his conversation is very much like, what's the future of humanity (laughs) Um, in the the face of uh, artificial intelligence? Any book that forces you to think differently is always worth reading, right? So mm. I'm I'm a fan of yeah, that already. So cool. I've got a note it. So. Excellent. Well, listen, it's uh, it feels like it's gone really quickly with a, a little tech issue in the middle, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it went really quickly. But Thierry, thank you very much for your time. It's been brilliant to have you on. I will put your contact details and everything yes. in the show notes, if that's all right, to, to get in touch. And we will all sit with bated breath, waiting to see what the next product of the, um, oh, of the production line is. It's going to be I good. It's going to be a banger. I cannot <laughs> wait for this one. I cannot wait. Uh, Thierry and Gutagore, thank you very much for your time. See you again. It's been my pleasure. Take care.